Joining me now is Harvard Law Professor Alan Dershowitz, joining me by way of Skype. Alan, I appreciate your uh, joining me. Uh, sorry to interrupt your uh, time with your family on the weekend, but I want to ask your reaction to the Department of Justice uh, release today that they are going to be looking at this as perhaps civil rights violations. Is that to answer the public pressure, or is there a good reason for them to be concerned about civil rights violations here? In general, the Justice Department does not investigate civil rights violations committed by one individual against another unless that individual works for the state or the federal government. A violation of civil rights usually involves the state, the government, violating someone's civil rights. George Zimmerman can't really alone violate the civil rights of an individual, even if he were to be guilty of the crime. Now, there ought to be a Justice Department investigation, but it ought to be focused on Prosecutor Corey in this case. She really violated civil rights in this case. What she did is she filed a false affidavit in front of the judge in order to get a second-degree murder charge. She failed to tell the judge that there were photographs and failed to show the photographs that demonstrated that Zimmerman's nose had been broken, that he had uh, uh, wounds in the back of his head. She misled the judge into giving her an overcharged second-degree murder charge against Zimmerman. That is a true violation of civil rights. And uh, the rest of the case is relatively routine. There was reasonable doubt written all over this case. To this day, nobody knows who, who struck the first blow. And that's already reasonable doubt. You nobody knows who yelled out, help me. Uh, nobody can be absolutely sure who was on top and who was on bottom, but the evidence overwhelmingly suggests that Trayvon Martin was on top and was banging the head of Zimmerman against concrete, thereby risking his life or certainly risking permanent injury. That doesn't sound like a civil rights violation. That sounds like a classic case of self-defense. NBC is calling a mistake that Today Show recently ran an edited version of George Zimmerman's 911 call to exaggerate the racial undertones. But if this was really a mistake, just how easy of a mistake was it to make? Here's NBC's edited audio versus the unedited audio from the original call. This guy looks like he's up to no good. He looks black. Did you see what he was wearing? Yeah, a dark hoodie. This guy looks like he's up to no good or he's on drugs or something. It's raining and he's just walking around looking about. Okay, and this guy, is he white, black, or Hispanic? He looks black. So you'll notice the 911 operator specifically asked George Zimmerman about Trayvon Martin's race. Zimmerman did not volunteer that information, something NBC conveniently edited out. So we're here in PJTV's Edit Bay to demonstrate the steps necessary to show this wasn't just a mere slip of the finger or an accident. You have to be deliberate in your actions to make this kind of edit. So we've got George Zimmerman's audio lined up on what we call the timeline. This guy looks like he's up to no good. Or 
In order to recreate the NBC edit, we find the in and out points. He's on drugs or something. It's raining and he's just walking around looking about. Okay, and this guy, is he white, black, or Hispanic? And delete the selection. So to help cover the edit's tracks, we're going to add an audio crossfade. Okay, so now we're going to play the edited piece of audio with the crossfade in place, and you can hear what NBC played. This guy looks like he's up to no good, or he looks black. Did you see what he was wearing? Yeah, a dark hoodie. And that's how you make a 911 call look racist. And welcome to another exciting episode of the Next Report Unix and Overlook Pop Culture. I'm Thomas. I'm Mitchell Brown. And I'm Zach Dotson. Okay, the, I'm going to be really honest here. The first two clips you're going to be here, you've heard at the beginning of the show, then our intro, and then after that. The first clip is, well, not everybody's a fan of Alan Dershowitz, and yes, it's from Mike Huckabee's show on... Who I am really not a fan of. <laughs> I don't think most people are. <laughs> on Fox News Channel. Um, not a fan of that network either. <laughs> most people, well, quite a few people are not, but every now and then something interesting comes out of there. So, what I did was I... I've been perusing online and everything else because after hearing the whole verdict of not guilty. Of? You didn't say the name of the case. Zimmerman. The Zimmerman Just trial. in case somebody's been on Mars. Zimmerman. We don't know. Um, and Dershowitz, not everybody's a fan of him, but he is an attorney, He or he is a law professor, excuse me, and he has he's had plenty of experience in that particular field. Um, so basically offering insight and also something from Pajamas Media uh, demonstrating how something was altered that created another perception that turned out to not necessarily be true or accurate. I initially had no interest in this, I'm going to be honest, until I started noticing how everything got overhyped, overhyped, mm -hmm. overhyped. <clears throat> Last year, this whole brouhaha started. Are you going to play the clip? I hate to interrupt like that. Are it, it's the clip is at the beginning. Oh, so they've already. Okay, it's already right. pasted okay. in and all that good stuff. Um, I had no interest in this. It's just at first because I saw it for another thing that it was, it was just yet another great big distraction from other things that were happening in this country and around the world that I viewed as a little bit more important than somebody who got shot on the streets. And I kept asking myself, why are people making a big deal out of this? And then <coughs> certain information came to light, the whole not guilty thing, the whole hyping everything up, the the cries from but it turned into basically it turned into another OJ situation, another trial, or maybe another trial of the century, or first trial of the century of the twenty first century. Because my I uh, a lot of people like you see stuff on Facebook. Oh, I'm tired of hearing about this. Like people who were bombarded with it, I'm sure it interrupted or soap operas or whatever. But I I don't watch TV. I don't have cable. Any type of media that I'm plugged into comes via the internet. And what, I, what I've seen so far 
is that a lot of people who are um, quite unfamiliar with the facts of the case are making these sweeping allegations as to what was the motive, what um, what was involved in the case, and are extrapolating the re what they believe was the prime motive of the case to be a larger national issue. And mm -hmm. to a certain respect, it, it is, because at the end of the day, the court case is still questioning whether George Zimmerman racially profiled Trayvon Martin. And if we're talking about making sure that everybody has um, equal t protection before the law, especially in the era where we're still dealing with race relations with um, the electing of a first African-American president, it becomes a national issue. Um, but what I've seen personally is that a lot of people have grabbed on to certain narratives and these narratives are largely unsubstantiated, especially by given the facts of the case that were presented in court. And they've la uh, latched onto these narratives, and suddenly we now have a hyperpartisan racial battle afoot with no real end in sight. I, that's very, very dramatic of you to end it on that note. But unlike Thomas, I, I pretty much followed this from the beginning, maybe peripherally, you know, stories here and there, mainly through NPR and, and AP articles to come in, because initially I had an emotional response. I was involved with this, and my emotional response came from personal experiences. I've been racially profiled. I've been followed around in stores when under the assumption I was going to steal something. I've had the police stop me and ask me stupid questions, people cross the other side of the street when they see me coming, all of that. I've dealt with all of that. So I, like I said, it's I have a, an emotional response to this. And my perception of it changed via when the story broke in the, in the beginning, back in, back in March or whenever, March 2012, to now. And my opinion on it changed due to the evidence and I w and uh, testimony presented in court. Um, basically, he was found not guilty by a jury. He was acquitted on all charges. There were, um, and there's been quite a bit of response since then. So, I, find, I, I personally, I find the response to be very frustrating and i <clears throat> well, to, be and, clear, to be clear you're talking about the public national response yeah, the, not the, the legal response the, no the, the yes the public national response and the conversation or hyperbole that presents having an actual dialogue i find that to be more frustrating and irritating than than the verdict itself uh, like what what dotson said is People have latched on to this narrative uh, that, uh, of, that vilifies... Well, the, the left has a narrative that vilifies Zimmerman because those on the right, who I also don't agree with, have a separate narrative that exalts Zimmerman. But the left are the ones who are out in the streets protesting and have the volume on their voices turned up the loudest on this issue. So they have a narrative in which Zimmerman is 
demonized and vilified and absolutely a racist, excuse me, and that exalts uh, Martin to the status of sainthood. And a lot of what, to, to continue and to carry on this narrative, one would have to ignore some of the evidence that's been presented in court, and that that's not what a critical thinker does. It, it, the response really frust- has frustrated me. And let's take our... Uh um, take our listeners in through some of the evidence that was presented in the case. In the court case with Zimmerman, um, we had witness testimony indicating that um, when Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman were in their physical altercation, that George Zimmerman was eventually knocked to his back. Trayvon Martin was standing over him and punching him repeatedly in the face and in the body. And Upon which George Zimmerman, um, uh, test, well, he didn't testify. Um, he had told police that he had a reasonable worry that his life was in danger. He pulled his weapon and um, fired at Trayvon Martin, ultimately killing him. This fact alone, if taken just by itself, seems to me that, you know, despite what happened before and what happened uh, during the physical altercation, that fact alone seems to me like it is being largely ignored within the uh, narratives on both sides. If we're looking at the evidence presented um, in court, when George Zimmerman first noticed Trayvon Martin, um, and I believe we, we do have that at least some of the footage, um, or some of the recordings from George Zimmerman mm-hmm. uh, making or speaking with um, additional authorities, Zimmerman noticed what he believed to be somebody who was a suspect that may or may not have committed a crime. As a police officer, most of the time, those officers... Um, he didn't even necessarily say committed a crime. His actual words well, right, were, yeah, probable somebody cause. Who, this guy looks suspicious. This guy looks suspicious. Looks like he's on drugs. I have probable cause to at least approach him and ask him about what he is doing and where he is going. Um, so... In terms of police protocol, it sounds like the evidence that was presented in favor of George Zimmerman was that he was following police protocol. He um, got out of his vehicle, approached Martin. They uh, chances are probably. I would necessarily, sort of, of course, and what people, the listeners who accept the 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 narrative prompted on the left are going to say, he did not necessarily followed police protocol because one of the issues that becomes a point of contention is. The 911 dispatcher, not not a police officer, told him, Sir, we don't need you to do that when asked you wanted me to follow him or get out of the car or whatever. What that dispatcher said, that's not that's not binding. It's not an order you, you're under under legal oath to follow. Right. And I think in most cases police departments were err on the side of the officer who is actually seeing the event take place to make um, a choice as to whether approaching the suspect is warranted. And although Zimmerman um, did not follow the directions from the dispatcher, he approached Trayvon Martin. Uh, I'm presuming that they had some sort of argument about about why uh, Trayvon Martin was quote-unquote being followed by Zimmerman, what Zimmerman was stopping him for, 
And eventually what happened, uh, we've had kind of shoddy testimony from both sides because nobody, the, the witnesses involved in the case, there's not a single witness that was involved that saw the entire event transpire. We have right. slices of of the event, and we kind of have this kind of collage. Basically, of people. Who, people so I'm interrupt. Basically, people who saw the aftermath of it, and through that recorded aftermath, you can get a composite picture. But it's a composite that's not a hundred percent clear. Right. They're basically, and this is from a website called American Anchor. They threw up this whole little timeline thing. So, from what I'm understanding, there was two minutes after two minutes. That's when he basically hung up. He was headed back towards his truck. That was two minutes that was missing. It was just him, Zimmerman, and Martin. So, those were the only two witnesses, and that's what created the biggest problem in terms of evidence in the first place. There were no other witnesses around. Nobody else was there until after the shot was fired. So, and this is a concept that people have trouble understanding. I took, I took one class regarding business law and all that, and they took us through basically how the court system works and one of the things that a jury you know has to do is they have to prove things beyond a shadow of a doubt mm-hmm. it's up to the jury to figure out in these type of trials whether somebody did something illegal or not i wouldn't even necessarily use the wording it's for them to figure out they have i mean you bring up a very good point the jury is has to or is led to make a decision based on the evidence that's presented. And you're right, to get a conviction, you have to have guilt beyond the shadow of a doubt. And the evidence presented, uh, his, what you would say, fractured or broken nose of Zimmerman, the the wounds to his head, light or not, the the bullet trajectory, the, the, the forensic evidence or forensic testimony, of the bullet tra- trajectory matching the account that Martin was on top of Zimmerman, all of those things create doubt. So when people say, so the verdict, it's not even necessarily about justice or what you or I or anyone else thinks is moral or right. It's a, it's a consequence or byproduct of the jury making a decision based on the evidence they have within the perimeter the perimeters of the legal system. And to be clear, um, the witnesses for the prosecution, um, I believe the forensic scientist last name is Bao B A O was the leading forensic scientist for the prosecution and he was unable to confirm in court um, beyond a reasonable doubt that what Zimmerman was saying was false. He made note of the lacerations on the back of George Zimmerman's head. He said that they were consistent with him being on the ground, of him being either pushed or shoved um, to the ground. And uh, the rest of the testimony was consistent with George Zimmerman's account that he then discharged his weapon from being from 
a um, from being li- uh, lying on the ground. And re- regardless of what your thoughts are about the verdict, as Mitchell alludes to, this verdict is is a, is more or less just a consequence of people being able to understand what has happened. Uh, like we said previously, this is this is a very messy case. Very messy, very complicated. And what we have are basically a lot of puzzle pieces from different puzzles all together trying to be mashed together to create an overall picture of what happened. Now, I want to get into some of the meta implications of um, the Trayvon Martin case, especially with race relations in the United States. We've kind of seen a, um, a dramatic increase in the amount of conflicts on racial lines within the United States. I'm talking about political conflicts, not necessarily violent conflicts. Mm-hmm. Now, we've we've seen this outcropping basically since a little bit before, well, actually several years before Barack Obama was elected president because um, we had the midterms. Now, I want to uh, know what your all's thoughts on on the meta implications of race relations of of these political groups trying to fight for racial equality in the United States, given the recent outcries from um, the left, from liberals who are decrying stand-your-ground laws, who are decrying that Zimmerman was racial profiling. That is a really tough question, and I guess I'll go first. I think with with, with the way that this, what I have a problem with is the way this is championed and Martin is exalted by those on the left, that it becomes less about him and what he symbolizes. I think there are plenty of issues that uh, deal with institutional institutionalized racism that should should be addressed. And I think some people are using Martin as a representative of that regardless of the specifics of the case. Yesterday, watching a live footage of the protests in New York, which were primarily peaceful. I think there were only a handful of arrests. I was watching it live on uh, Vice's website, if you ever heard of that publishing uh, company, whatever you want to call it. And why are there thousands? And I thought, why are it's using Martin as a proxy for the existence of racial inequality, which I think could be argued whether that actually, if the case is actually an example of that. Why are there thousands of people in the street protesting the death of one person and not uh, stop and frisk? The stop and frisk laws in New York, and this is in New York City, that is a law that I think is BS. It's uh, a deal that... uh, proportionately affects a larger amount of blacks and Latinos. I think that is more of a legitimate grievance for people to protest over if they're concerned about the issue of racial inequality or laws that unfairly affect minorities than the death of Trayvon Martin. And I agree with you uh, for the most part. I think that what we're seeing right now is a lot of very emotional hyperpartisan reaction to um, the Trayvon Martin case. There are some partisan issues that do need to be addressed, like um, Mitchell has already alluded to. We have stop-and-frisk policies. 
we have the existence of racial profiling, whether that does or does not exist. Dr drug laws in this country, which you could say is both right. institutionalized, if you want to racism, and if you want to use the word classism. Uh, Cornell West was on uh, uh, the what's the Bill Maher real uh, real time with Bill Maher and the issue of legalization of marijuana came up and even the Republicans that were on the panel or Republicans or conservative leaning people were in agreement with it, it should be legalized they're willing to entertain the idea of legalization or decriminalization of marijuana right and what we're what well, what I've already said um, what we're seeing there are a lot of people who are basically using Trayvon Martin as a proxy um, stripping the facts out of the case in order to politicize it in a way for the the champion of the erasure of racial inequality. I think that's really problematic for a couple of reasons. For starters, we're using we're using somebody who core testimony has indicated that was beating a police officer to champion a cause who was to. Who was? Oh, no, no, Zimmerman wait, wait, wait. wasn't a police officer. No, no, no. no. Uh, not a police officer. I'm sorry. He was um, neighborhood watch, wasn't he? Right. Yeah. He, but I think he wasn't. He taken remo removed using, from the yeah he was organization um, uh, upon his arrest. We, what we're seeing is that we're using a necessarily violent actor in Trayvon Martin to champion a cause to decrease racial inequality within the system. I think that does a couple of things. For starters, it instead of being progressive and positive with your movement and trying to separate yourself from from uh, the the very frames that are used upon you, and try to use the system to contest political and social inequality. What we're seeing is kind of a hyperpartisan movement coming out that ultimately sees the political back to it. If their argument is true that these institutions are indeed racist and are indeed profiling them and targeting them, then not engaging on multiple levels, such as questioning stop and frisk, questioning um, racial profiling in other respects, such as possession of drugs and things of that nature, it makes the movement so partisan and political that it ultimately saps a lot of organizations' ability to link onto the movement. Mm -hmm. We had, like we, what we saw in um, the 1960s with. Uh, the Black Panther Party and um, Martin Luther King. Uh, originally, the Black Panthers had a very hard time of gathering, galvanizing support because a lot of people just perceived them to be extremely violent group, and that wasn't necessarily the case. Although they did advocate that if you were getting, you know, beaten up to defend yourselves. Um, and so, if you, if, if you recall, the original name of the group was the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Right. That was the full original title of the organization. Right, I think that a lot of moderate groups who are trying to work within the system to um, lobby their representatives to pass legislation to decrease racial inequality in the United States, a lot of those groups are either unwilling or very apprehensive to link on to these um, very political um, uh, groups for threat that their movement might not be taken seriously in the future. Right, like how I, and I was thinking about this and to draw this conclusion just this morning when I was thinking about it, because I saw 
footage of the protests yesterday, and I think I clicked on a news story about this morning, and I started thinking about it. You've got all of these people out in the streets with their, you know, uh, placards of, of Trayvon, and I, I, I survey the crowd, and it's, it's largely black, it's largely minority. You see sprinklings of people who would consider themselves to be white progressives or leftists, and I think about it. To me, the, you know, people who want to use this as a springboard for larger issues or even the issue of the murder of Trayvon Martin, where will this energy be a month from now, six weeks from now, two months from now? Uh, I have a pretty good idea where it's going to be. It's going to be non-existent, and those people are going to jump on to the next uh, trendy cause. I see those devoid of what the cause is. I see parallels between those protests and the Occupy movement or Coney. Right. People who need a cause without really studying the logistics of, of what that cause is and and what they're backing. Yeah, I think what uh, Mitchell's even alluding to uh, and what I've defended in the past when these groups become hyper-political and partisan, you have kind of a division within their own internal ranks. What happens is that um, what we saw, especially with the Occupy Wall Street movement, is that you had a lot of these various people who are approaching this movement from a variety of different perspectives with no unified message. And then when they have something... And it just becomes noise. To, right. It and becomes unorganized noise. When they have a like one singular issue to... Um, attack, you have moderates in the group, you have extremists in the group who are un, who are incapable of coming to a consensus as to how to approach the problem. And then what happens is that you have all these little micro groups that pop up, and then the movement ultimately dies out mm. altogether. And so, I, I'm very, very reluctant um, on uh, to say that what we'll have is a positive discussion of race relations in the United States, if that's what we want to go to I think, in the United States. I think because of all the hyperbole and emotional response, and maybe that emotional response becomes a prerequisite for participating in some of these movements. I, and this frustrates me, that the dialogue is blocked or stifled. I've seen, you know... Facebook statuses at, during the night of the reading of the verdict. People who are left, who classify themselves as leftist, liberal, open-minded, critical thinkers. I saw messages of that if you have a differing, not necessarily, if you have a differing opinion on the Zimmerman case other than outrage and the vilification of Zimmerman and exaltation of Martin, uh, F you, get out of my life, defriend me, defriending and blocking people who have a point of view other than your own. That, that is, that's not even classically liberal or what someone who is open-minded does. And I'm thinking so many of these people who can apply critical thinking and criticism to religion, because a lot of the people that, that uh, were put, putting up these statuses are people I know who tend to be non-religious, as I am as well. And if you can apply critical thinking and a critique to that, why can't you apply 
critical thinking and a, a deeper critique to this issue, you're not really, in that case, you're not really a critical thinker. And yesterday we had um, a Vienna Circle barbecue, and, and Danny brought this up. He said that somebody who would take that type of s response isn't a critical thinker. In, with their beliefs or whatever, they create the illusion of being a critical thinker. They learn a script of what a critical thinker is, is supposed to say. I think what we're ultimately seeing here is if this, if this is just to keep getting recapitulated and it's just going to become more and more partisan over time, I think what we're having is that there's a lot of, there's already a lot of deep-seated distrust for government actors to positively intervene to solve social problems. And I think what we're going to see even more of is that citizens become disengaged with um, government and or social institutions in a way that um, in a way that says that they're not interested in working with these institutions. And what happens is that when these people disengage from being involved in politics, the people who are making decisions that create the conditions of racism, of social disparity, of discrimination, those people are still going to be staying in power, whether you like it or not. And so the important thing to take away from this particular case is that instead of disengaging from other people because they have a different opinion than you, then to engage them, learn the argument, and hopefully galvanize a movement that speaks to a criticism of that major argument and hopefully progress towards some sort of social equality for people. Outside of that, what we're having is a lot of people sticking their head in the sand and not willing to listen to other people. And what happens is that we're not progressing as a nation or even within our communities. And we're going to, because of that, we're going to see more Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman cases. We're going to see more uh, we're going to see more people being taken advantage of if that is the particular case. And there's not going to be any solving of any social issue for a very long time. This kind of reminds me of... I, I was in grade school when the O.J. Simpson trial, the, the verdict was you know, put live on national television. I was you know, in like grade school and they actually hooked the television up and changed the channel to the channel that was airing it, and that that kind of remind that's more than likely part of the reason why I just kind of ignored the case for the most part until recently because I remembered that I remembered a lot of people didn't want to believe that O.J. Simpson was guilty because nobody likes to see a hero fall. It's not fun to think about, and we forget that people are human too. And, and furthermore, um, I'd like to get into the whole, you know, looking at the information at hand. Um, for example, at this point, the only, the, on the legal ground, Zimmerman ha still has to worry about the federal government charging him with violating somebody's civil rights. Dershowitz already indicated that if that's, you know, that's not going to be likely, seeing as he's an individual and he doesn't work for the government. Um, according to a document directly from the FBI on the smoking gun website, um, Officer Serino even explained that 
Zimmerman may have had a hero complex, uh, may have been overzealous, but he was not racist. And that even... Or that there were no indicators of it, because, I mean, unless you're clairvoyant, you can't necessarily know what somebody's innermost private thoughts are. You can get close, but you don't know 100%. And you, you bring up uh, a good issue, because the media narrative was tilted towards Zimmerman is a racist. So what do you think about media coverage, or how did media feed that? Because one, coupled with the my own personal experiences and emotional response, combined with the dominant narrative in mainstream media, that's what led me to think, Zimmerman is the bad guy and this was premeditated. It wasn't until recently, until uh, the night before the verdict, heavily researching the trial, watching unedited footage within the courtroom, I, I, I came to a different opinion. And there, there's also a story that was published on May 23rd of last year where in 2011 he accused the Sanford police of covering up a, an alleged beating of a homeless black man, which is not consistent, as you have right, stated. Right, exactly. That, I mean, and I was made privy to that knowledge via, it's, it's this excellent video, it's on the Punk Rock Libertarian's Facebook, about it's a, it's a guy who hosts some type of radio show, analytically deconstructing pieces of evidence including details of Zimmerman's life and Martin's life and the story and the story that you sent me about him basically taking on the police department and the statements he had made in like a town hall meeting about the covering covering up of this uh, of this beating of this homeless black man why the, the I'm looking at the article right now that was published in um what is this the Tam CBS Tampa Bay, and it's dated in 2012. Why wasn't this all over the place? Because I think this is important. Because if the narrative is that Zimmerman is a racist, and it, it, it was racial profiling is why he confronted Martin, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but this piece of information, it serves as a counterpoint to that. Would somebody who is a die-hard racist, want to go against the police department where they live because of the beating of a homeless black man. Not, it's not, in this case, it's not just someone who's a minority, it's someone who is homeless, which is probably the most, you don't find a more marginalized group in the U.S. than the homeless. So why isn't this story that is also an indicator of Zimmerman's character, why was this not all over the place? I think because the <clears throat> the media, with with our media being a, on basically a 24-7 news cycle, has to, they get, they receive certain information, but ultimately they create a very simple narrative at, so they can attract audiences, right? If the, if the narrative is simple, if the story is simple to follow, then you can appeal to a larger base of people and ultimately gather more people who are viewing your content. But on a on a journalistic level, I that's think the, like I was about to say, that is right. doing a disservice is, 
to journalism. It is. And I, I, think, I think a journalist who actually cares about doing their job wants to present an accurate narrative, not a, not a simple narrative. And, and this was also covered in the... There was also an issue in which there was pressure to go after Zimmerman. Um, this was published in the Miami Herald last year. This same month, last year, where there was this pressure to go after the guy. So, all of this stuff is just... I, My biggest fear right now, and yeah, it is a fear with me, is that people are intertwining in an inappropriate manner justice and vengeance. And we're at a point at the moment where people seem to not be able to differentiate between the two. People seem to be more wanting vengeance instead of actual justice. And I'm thinking that's part of the problem, part of the reason why this stuff is happening right now. And this has been something that's been on my mind for a while, and it's it is very hard to say this. It's the same reason, unfortunately, why certain voting decisions were made in 2008. The same reason why when somebody says something, they're called a racist. Both parties involved happen to be Caucasian. I think right now... What, a, what incident are you talking about? It's just something I've observed. Uh-huh. Oh, yes, yes. There's, there's, there's third rail... Uh, like for for instance, uh, to be to be quite honest, uh, tr you know Trayvon Martin caught a bullet from George Zimmerman, who himself is not white, who he is Latino, not Hispanic. That word was constantly misused by the media and even as a classification with our own government to explain somebody. The word Hispanic it means. Spaniard, or I think maybe Spanish, either Spaniard or Spanish, and a Spaniard is from Spain like an Irishman is from Ireland. Latinos are a mixed-race byproduct of the conquest of the, of the conquistadors. So, but getting back to, but Trayvon Martin had more of a likelihood of catching a straight, catching a bullet from another black man than he did Martin or, or I meant uh, Zimmerman, or a Caucasian. I, as a black man, if I was to sit, if one of the, the, the growing fears is, I've read articles of, the real fear of this is more Zimmermans. This, this idea or this, this demonization of people, of people who are out there, look, which of course it does exist, not as prevalent as it is, as it was in the past, who are looking for black men to hunt and target, but the reality of it is, is that a black man has more of a chance, statistically proven, of catching another bullet from a black man than from a Caucasian or a Latino, or most definitely an Asian. I, as a black man, if I say that, I have a little bit more leadway, even though people might not want to hear it, if you're to see it, for arrive at that, if you're to say it, because you've arrived at that same conclusion, analyzing the data, 
you have more of a likelihood of being called racist for noticing that pattern. Yeah, and that's, that's the biggest part of the problem. I think right now, there are those who have jumped on it out of fear that if they don't, they themselves will be called racist. That's the pattern I've been noticing. I don't necessarily think of that. I think with, with those, with, you want to say, white liberal leftist, like I said, it becomes... Another. There might be some people who truly feel passionate about it. I think... To a certain extent, it becomes another trendy cause to jump on, like Occupy was, even though there are people who felt passionate like that. So to a certain extent, this becomes an equivalent of what wearing a Che Guevara shirt was a decade ago. And what ultimately happens is that either the movement becomes trivialized or people just forget what the original cause was about. And ultimately, what happens in both circumstances is... Social inequalities aren't addressed, and the conditions upon which they're created are ignored. Um, I want to briefly jump into uh, what I, he I keep hearing a lot of people who are talking about the Stand Your Ground law in Florida. And uh, for our viewers who are not familiar with Stand Your Ground laws, 20 states, including Florida, I believe, um, it might be 21 with the inclusion of Florida, have Stand Your Ground laws. And... Um, if you're unfamiliar with stand-your-ground laws, it gives the ability for uh, people to defend themselves in the event that they're being attacked. Um, Sometimes uh, uh, we're not we're not necessarily condoning stand-your-ground laws or or speaking against them, but I want to know what your all's views are on stand-your-ground laws. I keep hearing a lot of people say we need to seriously address stand-your-ground laws in the United States and their ultimate implications, especially with regards to police officers or, alternatively, people taking justice into their own hands. I have not done a whole ton of research on the Stand Your Ground law and people, uh, opponents of, of Zimmerman and, and the verdict, uh, bring the Stand Your Ground law into the mix, but the Stand Your Ground law was not used as a defense when the case went to trial. It was strict. It was strictly self-defense. Another interesting thing about the stand it wasn't. It wasn't because stand your ground law wasn't a viable defense. It mm -hmm. was because the attorneys were backed against the clock on trying to get their case together to present before the court, and they thought that it was more strategically viable for Zimmerman to go to court with a purely self-defense claim instead mm. of okay. using stand your ground. And well, a, an interesting and just an interesting FYI, the origins of the stand your ground law were designed with the the plight of battered women in mind. That's the origins of the stand your ground law. Um, this this piece from the hit and run blog on reason.com from Jacob Solom. Uh, the headline is sorry the Zimmerman case still has nothing to do with stand your ground. I'll get to a piece of it just to kind of give some perspective on it as well. The story that George Zimmerman told about his fight with Trayvon Martin, the one that yesterday persuaded a jury to quit him of second-degree murder and manslaughter, never had anything to do with the right to stand your ground when attacked in a public place. Knocked down and pinned to the ground by Martin, Zimmerman would not have had an opportunity to escape as Martin hit him and knocked his head against the concrete. 
The duty to retreat, therefore, was irrelevant. The initial decision not to arrest Zimmerman, former Sanford, Florida Police Chief Bill Lee said last week, as paraphrased by CNN, had nothing to do with Florida's controversial stand-your-ground law because, from an investigative standpoint, it was purely a matter of self-defense. And as the New York Times explained last month, Florida's stand-your-ground law has not been invoked in this case. The only context in which stand-your-ground was mentioned during the trial was as part of the prosecution's attempt to undermine Zimmerman's credibility by arguing that he lied when he told Fox News host Sean Hannity that he had not heard of the law until after the shooting. During his rebuttal on Friday, Prosecutor John Guy declared, This case is not about standing your ground. In the initial court case, Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin, stand your ground, like we said, wasn't evoked. Um, however, because um, the man's, or because second-degree murder was thrown out, the Martin family still has the opportunity to present a civil lawsuit against Zimmerman um, for wrongful death. And what the Martin family would get out of it if they won the court case was would be financial and compensatory damages for the death of Trayvon Martin. The reason why Stand Your Ground is relevant in this particular case, however, is that although it wasn't invoked in the original court case, it can be used as a justification for the defense and ultimately, according to Florida statute, the case would be thrown out. This is These are still legal options that Zimmerman has, and so although it wasn't necessarily the case in the, the first court case, it can still be used as a valid defense. Now, like you read, the Florida statute says that the person has must have the opportunity to escape from the person or the aggressor in this case. And in the case of George Zimmerman, there wasn't an ability to do so. He was lying flat on his back on concrete and getting punched in the face. So on a technical level, stand your ground cannot be evoked in the court case. Now, it would be really interesting um, if this case does um, come to a civil lawsuit, if we're still going to be hearing the narratives that we've already expressed on the show, um, or if there's, any, if there's going to be any new type of information that comes out now that the court case is... Uh, the initial court case of secondary murder has been resolved. Um, and with that, we would like to know what your thoughts are on the acquittal of Zimmerman. We have a Facebook fan page. You can sign up for our website as well. Um, though, uh, don't don't name your username after a spam bot. It will get pruned. <laughs> I keep having that issue over and over again. Um, until next time, um, entertain yourself, educate yourself, and empower yourself. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. This has been another exciting episode of the Next Report Podcast with your hosts Thomas Holbrook II, Mitchell Brown, and Zach Dodson. Our website is thenextreport.com, where you may view show notes, and listen to our other podcasts as well as consume other content. The intro to the show is from J.T. Bruce's Plunge into Hyperreality, a part of his album Dreamer's Paradox, available under Creative Commons at gemendo.com. We are on other social networks such as YouTube, Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Google+. 
Remember to entertain yourself, educate yourself, and empower yourself.